Yo, I'm Sai, and this is So You Want to Be a Better Ally. And speaking of allyship, today we're talking about an ally I'm not sure you knew you had. Anger, as in the emotion. Anger gets a bad rap, but it's there for a reason. Like Malcolm X says, and I'm paraphrasing here, there is a time and place for anger where nothing else will do. I'm interested in exploring that time and place. So these next two episodes are going to explore the concept of where your anger takes you, and what do you do when you can't come back from it? If you don't get how managing anger the right way and mental health in general can lead to better allyship, then you definitely need to listen to this episode. So let's do this thing. Play that funky music, white boy. I'm saying that because the guy who made this theme is white, so it's a joke. You can do this First off, why should you care about your anger and how to manage it? Anger is linked to a whole host of effects, both negative and positive, on your body. Let's start with the bad first because that's what we're familiar with. The American Psychological Association says it leads to an increased risk in heart disease, strokes, and ulcers. Repressing your anger is linked to tension in your shoulders, your neck, and if left untreated, can induce acid reflux, panic attacks, glaucoma, insomnia, the list goes on. But then there's all the good that anger can do as well. Anger exists for a reason, and that reason largely has to do with self-preservation. Anger is what makes us better negotiators, improves our memory, makes us more creative, helps us stand up for our beliefs and values, draws vital boundaries for relationships in our lives, and also it shields us from even more painful emotions and thoughts. Sigmund Freud coined that last one. He said that anger masks real problems hiding underneath. He calls anger a raw, superficial emotion that prevents, defends, or blocks you from feeling even more painful emotions. For example, a person who is betrayed by their partner may use anger to control their partner rather than share their own pain, which is difficult to bear. I think that's interesting. That idea of, okay, I don't want to deal with this tougher thing, so anger is just here to cover me and protect me instead. So what it seems like to me is that anger and angry behaviors that can be perceived as quote-unquote bad are really just maladaptive. Remember maladaptive from the last episode? It's a fancy word that means not getting your needs met. So ask yourself, what need is your anger trying to meet and how can we get better at expressing that? You know, they say treat your anger like a child in the car. They shouldn't be at the wheel, but you shouldn't put them in the trunk either. (laughs) So where does it fit? Let's see what science says. So listeners, let's follow my lead here. I want you to raise your hand, and I want you to make a fist and put your thumb inside of that fist, right? So a fist and a thumb inside of your fist. Awesome. Now, what you're looking at is the hand-brain model as developed by Dr. Dan Siegel. Ha ha! So look at your wrist. That represents your brainstem. That's what controls all of your physiological functions, your body, your breathing, all that stuff. Then if you lift your fingers up, your thumb represents your amygdala. This is your emotional control center. All emotions, all reactions right there. Now close your fingers again. This area here, your knuckles, that represents your prefrontal cortex. That's the side of your brain that rationalizes and thinks. This is where critical thinking comes from. This is what's usually driving the car. 
Now, here's a fun metaphor when it comes to anger. Anger exists for a reason. It's there to trigger a fight, flight, or freeze response in our bodies. So imagine something just made you angry looking at your hand, and you know, and press your palm real quick. And now raise your fingers. You flipped your lid. Ha ha. <laughs> but literally, because now anger is the one driving your car. The child is now at the wheel. I have to thank Juna Mustad and her TEDx talk, Anger is your ally for that quick little quip. And you can find that in the links to the rest of this information at buildabetterally.com slash reference. She also says something that I think is pretty profound when it comes to anger at the wheel. She says, anger hangs around until we take action we want to see. It inspires us to come out of denial. Anger inspires action. I love that. Again, that need for action for a chance at having a constructive behavior. What actions do you take when your anger takes control of the wheel? What is your coping strategy, in other words? So let's define coping strategy into three steps here. What does your anger inspire you to do first while it has the wheel? Then what's the second thing you do as you wrestle control back from that child? And now how are you de-escalating, putting that kid back in the booster seat where they belong? You know, the classical composer Beethoven is a great example of just regular people as a work in progress as far as it comes to, like, anger management. He had, like, a huge temper. He was a known hothead. And he liked to do things like throw things at his assistants. He had a penchant for getting in fist fights and hopefully winning, and far too often. And yet also gave us some of the most amazing music the world has ever heard. That's linked to his anger. That's how he got it out. That was his coping strategy. Let me tell you about mine. So I see anger in different ways, in different levels, and respond to it differently, which is why I think we have so many different words for anger. So what that looks like is this. You know, when I'm pissed, I throw something. When I'm frustrated, I squeeze something. When I'm stressed, I eat arugula straight from the bag. (laughs) Specifically, arugula because it tastes how I feel, which is bitter and spicy. And if I'm confronted with conflict that I just don't see going anywhere or being resolved or me being heard, I leave, I elope, I walk from whatever it is in whatever capacity I can. So that's what I do whenever my initial anger is triggered. So now me processing my anger, right, getting that control back from the child, that's journaling for me. Used to be written form, but now it's like a voice diary because I really like Star Trek. And it started as a joke because I just wanted to pretend to be like a captain on Star Trek. And I was like, Captain's Log, Stardate, yada, yada, yada. No signs of intelligent life. (laughs) But then I realized like this little machine like had to listen to me and had to remember it. And I was like, yep, I'm sold. And then the third step, what I do to de-escalate, that's whenever I do like my yoga, my breathing. You know, once I've given my anger time, space, and respect, it's whenever I can finally like say, okay, it's time to either let this go or do something. And if I find myself repeating the same conversation over and over again in my head, then I do the next best thing, which is what Beethoven did and create something, right? Poems, plays, short stories. Usually that's just for myself, but every once in a while it makes it out there into the real world. For example, this podcast, (laughs) the very first episode, my pilot episode, 100% me being angry. I ripped it straight from my voice diary. And now here we are. Okay, so enough of me talking about this, at least for right now. You know, I really liked in the last episode, we were talking about a training concept from the diversity interest group at Learn Behavioral. Love you guys. And it's called Tell, Show, Do. I've been telling you so far about behaviors you should look out for and maybe change and why, but now I'm going to show you, and later we're going to go do something together as 
listeners, and host. I plan on showing you by using the book Where the Wild Things Are. A million angels are clapping. We finally got to what the book is. Yay, me. <laughs> All right. So this will be a lot different from my earlier stunts because we're not just going to read it. We're going to go in it. So how, you might say? <laughs> like this. I am stepping away from my mic. Now I am standing up. All right. Now I am leaving the studio. We are walking down the hall. I am going to use my lesser backup mic in a second, everybody. We're going on a journey, listeners, and I am so excited to bring you along. But just as a disclaimer, is it going to be Masterpiece Theater? No. Amazon Audible? No. BBC Radio Productions? No. And I'm fine with that. Even Buffy had a season one. And I have to show you that we do this kind of stuff now so that you'll be prepared for when we start doing it more often later this season. Okay? All right, let's go. I'm really so excited to be doing this. But before we quite literally get into the book, I have to defend my reading of it because all but like three people really understood where I was coming from with this and why I picked it and what we're going to do with it. At first, I was defending my reading of the book by telling people, like, look at the movie, see how the movie was done in 2009 by Spike Jones, And, you know, I was like, well, if you just watch that, you'll get it. But honestly, I don't need you to do that. Instead, you can just listen to what the author has to say about it himself, Maurice Sendak who definitely is a wonderful case study in how to cope with negative emotions and just trauma and damage that you accumulate in your life in general. I love Maurice Sendak. For starters, he doesn't even consider himself a children's book author. He says, I don't do that. My books are about children, not for children particularly, right? And it shows. So let's explore why. Like here's a man who was born and raised during World War II. His parents were Jewish immigrants, right? And throughout just his childhood, they did things to guilt trip him into like obeying them. So for example, he cites often that whenever he didn't finish his meals or did something wrong, his parents, specifically his mother, would throw in his face, don't you know that children died today in the Holocaust? Like, how dare you? How dare you do that? You know, and so he says he ended up hating those kids, like for the longest time, just in his own mind, because they just made him miserable in his everyday life. So that's heavy. And in addition to that, you know, he's trying to process war in general and what that looks like in the world, especially World War II. And he cites whenever he was younger and his father dragging him downstairs to celebrate the end of the war, but that it really confused him to see all these dead bodies everywhere, like in pictures and on the news, you know, newspapers. And he was like, well, you know, how does a child make sense of all that? How do you rationalize it? You know, he goes, I think life is barbaric. So my interest is really, how do children survive the barbarism? And he also says, I think kids have a life of puzzlement and bewilderment. Or maybe it's just something that affected me deeply as a child and doesn't affect every kid. I'm just a haunted kid. That's his words, not mine. You know, for example, he says that he saw his friend die in front of him whenever he was a child. They were playing ball in an alley and that little ball rolled into the street and his friend went right after it like every PSA says you should not. And bam, friend got hit with a car and flew through the air. And later, you know, now later in his life, Maurice Sendak was saying 
that this inspired a lot of subconscious illustrations he made in his book of kids just flying through the air, either on crows or like in the night kitchen as the child just floats down and around through ceilings and floors. That's also pretty heavy. And also another case study like Beethoven of what happens to our art whenever we let our anger out in it. In fact, Marie Sendak says, I hid inside this modest form called the children's book and expressed myself entirely, which is then where you get books like Where the Wild Things Are. So a brief history on that. He literally made it because he could not draw horses. <laughs> he was supposed to make a book assigned to him by his editor called Where the Wild Horses Are, but he can't draw horses. And eventually he got the idea of drawing his Jewish relatives who came from the old country. You know, whenever they would visit his family in America, he was like, who the hell are these people? Like they're unkempt, they're hairy all over. I do not like the way they look. And you know, children are just harsh when it comes to appearance. And he thought they were monsters. And he hated the most whenever they would pick him up and say, oh, I could just eat you up. Sound familiar? So he took inspiration from those Jewish relatives and then created the wild things based off of them. And whenever he released the book, it was to nothing but controversy. So many nice white parents and librarians were like, oh no, this book is a wolf in children's clothing. And they said things specifically like, do not leave your child alone with this book. <laughs> and also, kids should not be confronted with monsters. And if there's any further doubt that mental health played a huge role in his artistry, whenever somebody asks him questions like this one, like, what happened to Max, <laughs> the main character from Where the Wild Things Are? What happened to Max? He's like, oh, that's a coy question. So I give him an answer and I'm like, hmm, you know, well, he's in therapy forever. He has to wear a straitjacket when he sees his therapist. And he references therapy a lot in his later interviews because he openly saw one. Another thing we should all be doing. And whenever he describes art, he's like, yeah, well, you know, that's what art is. I mean, you don't make up stories, you live your life. And I was not Max. I did not have the courage that Max had. And I didn't have the mother that Max had either. All of these play super huge factors when it comes into the interpretation of his work, which was the movie by Spike Jones. Okay, so last off, let's talk about it. The movie, right? My initial defense. So they worked on that for six years. They meaning Spike Jones, the director, and Maurice Sendak. And just like the book, the movie received a lot of controversy for confronting children with two real monsters. Again, this is nice white parents who were appalled to see such reality on a screen. These were the same nice white parents who were like, how dare you show a son get in a fight with his mother or a son be punished and sent to his room with no supper and then be given supper at the end but not getting any real punishment. No, 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 none of this can stand. And so too did the movie cause the same level of controversy, but honestly, that was Maurice Sendak's goal. He told Spike Jones, I want you to create the same reaction my book did whenever I first published it. And he did. And that's why I kind of love the movie and why I encourage everybody to watch it because just like this podcast, it, it takes very difficult concepts about mental health and translates them into a way that you can understand. So they never name anything that the characters have, but it's there. ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, 
all of it's there, but they just don't say what it is. Instead, you just see it. You see what it looks like. And that looking into the mirror is very disturbing for a lot of audience members because it's your real life. And I just love his wrapping up quote whenever he's talking to Spike Jones about it. And he was like, yeah, we did all this and we got away with it. <laughs> so now here we are. We have made it to the boat. It's our own private boat, just like Max had in The Wild Things. So be careful. Let's get on it. Yep, we're getting on the boat. Come on. Yep, there you go. Good job. Mmm, in my brain, I can hear this wonderful music playing as this journey starts. <laughs> and now here's my favorite part. We're gonna sail away through night and day, in and out of weeks and over a year to where the wild things are. Or where the hurt people are. But don't, don't click off just yet. Stay with me until after the credits because we still have to do something, okay? That's the last part of Tell Show Do. So first off, thank you to Mr. William Bremen, MS, Dr. Kelly Kosh, PhD in speech pathology, for all of your research, time, and so many voice notes. <laughs> Advanced thank yous to co-producer Deanna Thibodeau and script editors Brittany Garza and Aaron Didner. My theme music, Noah King. But this fun little number you're listening to is by Zach Attack Alec. Man, you rock. Thank you so much, Zach. Okay, and now we're going to do something. For the remainder of this episode, while this music plays, I challenge everyone who does not have an efficient coping strategy to give yourself one minute to seriously think about why that is and what you can do. Just one minute. One minute of dedicated time to yourself, your thoughts, and your own improvement. Just try it for me, please. If not, this minute will be here whenever you need it. Okay? No pressure. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.